Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our episode this week covers part two of our conversation with Wade Eastwood, a South African stunt coordinator and second unit director whose work includes Inception, Edge of Tomorrow, and the last two Mission Impossible films to name a few. As we caught up once again, we talked about Wade's first roles working on The Mummy and doubling James Bond himself on The World Is Not Enough, his view on the stunt industry today, and his experience creating the death-defying stunts with Tom Cruise, director Christopher McQuarrie, and his entire stunt team on the upcoming Mission Impossible Fallout. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Wade, we're so glad to have you back for part two of our conversation together. And uh, now that the Mission Impossible Fallout trailer has been released, we have plenty to break down and discuss together. So again, thank you for your time. But first, let's let's begin by talking about your background. I mean, my my passion has always been motorsport and motor racing. It's um, a very comp- difficult and very expensive sport to get into, um, and it's not always uh, the best talent that is necessarily at the top. Although there's some very talented boys up there. It's um, it's a lot about right place, right time, sponsorship deals and opportunity through having the right finances in place. So there's a lot of wasted talent out there that you would never hear of that would have actually uh, or could have actually been a Formula One world champion or Formula Two or whatever it is. They just didn't have the, the resources to get there, which is very unfortunate. And it's getting worse and worse um, as the years go on. I mean, very few drivers actually get paid to race now. Most of them are paying to race. So um, it was tough in my day too, didn't have the... Um, you know, the finances when I was growing up and didn't have the the sort of support. So I had to wait till I had a bit of money behind me through my work and I sunk it into um, Formula 3. I, you know, I, I didn't go through the junior categories, uh, go-karting, Formula Ford, Formula Renault, all these things. So I didn't have that opportunity. So I sort of jumped from doing one or two go-kart races straight into Formula 3, which is, was a feeder series for Formula 1. You know, I've got some good results. I had five wins uh, Last year, five wins with two seconds, so it was a it was a good thing. I mean, that was is what I'd love to do for for life. But I I have a day job, I guess, which is equally as exciting. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. What do you, what do you think it is about racing that fascinates you? For me, it's 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 really trying to perfect. I guess compared to a golfer, always trying to perfect the perfect shot. You know, it's a uh, with racing, you're trying to perfect every corner, every breaking point, hitting it exactly at the right point getting on the throttle exactly at the right point and hitting the apex um, correctly and gaining those thousands or tenths of a second every corner or every lap and and trying to perfect the lap all the time as the car's balance changes the fuel burns off the tires wear etc etc so it's constantly aiming for that sort of perfection on a lap that you you never feel you get but you're always striving for and you're pretty close i'm from italy and i remember growing up with a lot of passion still existing now about any kind of, you know, Formula One or two or three racing. So I can definitely appreciate that. And I'll come back again and ask you more about that in a moment. Uh, But we previously spoke about your experience starting out in the indie uh, action movies in South Africa. And eventually you moved to the UK where you started working in the British stunt industry. And I believe one of your first big jobs was working with Simon Crane, uh, who was the stunt coordinator on The Mummy in 99. And 
the same year you were brought on to work on the 21st Bond film, The World Is Not Enough, with uh, Vic Armstrong as a second unit director. And if I'm not mistaken, both you and Gary Powell doubled Fort Pierce Brosnan on the jet boat uh, sequence in the film's opening. Uh, what were those weeks like filming on the Thames in London? And what were the creative challenges of making a water chase exciting? You know, you mentioned some names there, Vic Armstrong and <clears throat> Simon Crane are two sort of legends in the in the business, you know, and have created some amazing action over the years. Uh, I was with Simon Crane for coming on 18 years as his sort of, you know, right-hand stunt coordinator uh, when he became a second-year director. And um, I worked with Vic. Uh, Vic's son actually works as my assistant stunt coordinator on my team, Scott. So it's a lot of history there and um, <clears throat> some amazing people involved in some amazing sequences. I was lucky enough as a young South African kid who um, had enough of the small movies in South Africa and the budget restraints to, I wanted to spread my wings and, and do bigger action and more creative action, which the budgets there didn't allow. Um, yeah, I got the opportunity to do audition with uh, Simon Crane and, um, you know, I'm, I did well in my audition and got me the job and and then was with him ever since. And uh, the first movie I did with him was The Mummy, um, 99, I think it was. Um yeah. 98, no, 98 or something like that. And then uh, it's quite strange. I came full circle and last year did the, the new Mummy with Tom Cruise, which I was then the second new director and stunt coordinator of. So it was a, it was a full circle. It was a weird, a weird thing for me last year, actually, with that, with that in mind. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of fun on those, on those movies and uh, the Bond movie especially. I mean, to be part of a Bond movie as a, a young kid who was a massive Bond fan, um, to come over to London and get to drive this jet boat down the River Thames uh, had the River Thames locked off for like seven weeks. You know, Vic Armstrong, second year directing and Simon Crane stunt coordinating and uh, myself as just a, you know, young stunt performer doubling James Bond in London down the River Thames. It was it was just massive. They, I mean, my nickname was Smiler because I literally couldn't stop smiling. They had to um, ask me to stop smiling because all they could see was my teeth in the shot. Uh, I mean, I had the best time of my life. Absolutely. And, and people should know that you continue to work with Simon Crane over the years. And the two of you were actually nominated for a Taurus Stunt Award in 2011 for the work you guys did on SALT with Angelina Jolie. Now, as an award, it may not mean much to many, but this is perhaps the most prestigious award a stunt performer can aspire to, as it means that you're getting recognized by your peers. Um, so I wanted to ask, what do you, what do you think about, what do you think the, the Taurus Award means to the stunt community? And what do you make of the fact that after nine years of great action cinema, you know, starting with people like Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, the Academy of Arts and Sciences still hasn't made an Oscar category for the amazing stunt work that is done in the industry every year? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm known quite well in the business as not being very political or caring too much for awards because uh, I just go to work and, and, and do my job and try and create stuff. I'm not really interested in, in, a, in awards, period. For me, I, I don't need that. I'd rather, you know, just do my job, get creative, uh, get the reward out of that, get paid so I can go racing and enjoy my family and my life. But um, I definitely don't think it's a, a bad thing. I think too many people hang up too much on it, though. That You know, they, you'll hear stunt guys on set, you know, trying to do a sequence and going, yeah, this could get us an amazing award. I mean, you shouldn't be doing it for an award. You should be doing it to, to create an amazing sequence that gives audiences an, an amazing time and some escapism. Um, so from that side, I'm not really into it. I don't vote. I'm not involved in any of that stuff. If I had to have an uh, opinion on the Academy Awards, uh, you know, not being recognized, 
a second year director or stunt coordinator not being recognized by the academy. I get asked this a lot. And yeah, I think it's crazy. It is crazy. How can makeup and hair and costume and, and visual effects and special effects, they all get recognized. Well, they wouldn't, the special effect or visual effect would be pretty boring unless there was a stunt person in the foreground um, doing the actual, you know, doing the actual <laughs> effect. And um, the entire sequence is, is not normally thought up by the director or the, or, you know, or the writer. The sequences are nine out of 10 times created solely by the second year director stunt coordinator. Um, a lot of the times the sequence isn't even in the movie. It would be a, a guy goes from A to B, um, walks from A to B, and the stunt coordinator will come up with an entire car chase or something that would be remembered forever and wouldn't get recognized for it. However, I guess we're giving the illusion, um, their argument is we're giving the illusion that the actors do it all. But then visual effects and special effects are taking away that illusion for the audience too by showing them how it's done. So there is no real argument. Again, I, I'm not that bothered by it, but I do think it's kind of ludicrous that um, everyone's recognized except the people that create these massive action sequences that make the movies and often define the movies that get the awards. Yeah, I agree. And I'm still glad, frankly, that there's some awards like SAG that do recognize a stunt ensemble. It's not, you know, quite the same thing, but it's it's a positive start. It's also, you got to remember, the, the reason I'm not into awards a lot is it's so political. I mean, the Taurus Stunt Awards are, you know, it's a great award. Everyone gets very excited about it. I think I've been nominated several times for stunt awards for that. But, you know, it's a World Stunt Awards, and then they have foreign categories. So does that mean it's the US Stunt Awards and foreign categories, or is it actually the World Stunt Awards? Um, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's very much, it's, it's a political game, and I'd personally rather just stay away from all that stuff, just go to work, do my job, make audiences happy and excited and create sequences, and then go racing. So um, before we move on to more recent projects, um, I want to ask you, in 2013, you nearly got to work on Rush. Yes, Rush was a very touchy subject for me because it's, you know, Ron Howard, first of all, is an absolute gentleman, a legend. I had the honor of working with him on Inferno in, in uh, Florence and Budapest. And to this day, it's one of the best times in my film life. He is an absolute pleasure to work with. It was the most amazing cities to shoot in. I had a huge second unit. He was so giving and trusting and just uh, amazing to work with. I couldn't say enough nice things about Ron Howard. We, we discussed Rush a lot on that movie. He obviously had no idea I was, you know, I was uh, involved early on bidding for the job. And um, yeah, I got the script very early on. And I told my agent, actually, I'm, again, I speak always very openly and, and candid about these things. Um, I got, you know, I spoke to my agent. I said, I don't, I don't care what it takes. I want that job. There is no other second year director stunt coordinator in the business that is races cars in Europe in the Formula Series for a start that knows all the Formula One drivers that follows it like I do. I desperately want to do this. This is the most amazing story. The story of James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. I mean, that story can never be recreated because there were two iconic guys, racing drivers, who, who, you know, just bent the rules and pushed every boundary. You can never get that today in this commercialized Formula One world where all the drivers sound exactly the same. They're all robots being driven by their press and PR people and you're not allowed to say this and you can't say that. So, you know, that, that was a touchy subject. I'd, I'd spoken to production and um, I told them some ideas. I could have 
created the cars and done some crashes for real and really made it something that was a piece of history um, for those two iconic characters. And um, I got the team manager involved in the film who was Ayrton Senna and James Hunt's team manager at McLaren. Um, he's a friend of mine. So I got him involved in the film so that we could keep the realism in the characters. And, you know, I mean, those are stories back in the day, especially with everything going on in the world. I mean, you know, people don't realize like James Hunt on one of the one of the races was still hung over from the night before at the Nürburgring. And he went off and he didn't come back in the pits on their practice session. Nicky Lauda was so close to him and such a good friend, which people didn't know, that he got in his Ferrari and drove around the circuit to look for him against the rules. The session had closed. He got in his Formula One car, got back on the circuit and went and looked for him and found him off the track down a grass bank. Totally fine. He'd just been rubbed along the tire wall and he was asleep in his car. He'd actually passed out on the long straight from the night before and he pulled him out of his car. And there's, there's so many stories like that that um, really are heartfelt, real, genuine stories that were not portrayed in the film because no one brought it to the attention of the director. And it's about character and story, not about commercial hype all the time. And I feel that that movie missed the boat slightly because it was too commercialized and it lost its identity with the, the true trueness of the characters and what they really were back then. I know it was done for very little money. Well, very little money compared to, you know, very little money. And they, they didn't put a, you know, an action team involved in the movie that was into cars at all. I mean, there weren't even car people on the movie on the action side. So, you know, it's one of those things you, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. And that's always been my big controversial saying I say to everyone, studios around the world, you know, I don't care what people think. You pay peanuts, you get monkeys. That's it. Yeah. I want to I wanna remind people about your creative duties. And we touched on that. You know, you climbed the ladder, the industry ladder, we should say, going from a stunt performance to a stunt coordinator and from a stunt coordinator to a second unit director. Again, for, you know, great filmmakers like Ron Howard and now uh, McHugh. Uh, and looking back, I was going to ask you, what do you feel is the difference between a great between being a great stuntman or stunt woman and a great stunt coordinator? It, honestly, there <clears throat> again, there are a lot of stunt coordinators out there that should not be stunt coordinators, and for the simple reason they haven't done their time as a stunt performer. Um, male, female does doesn't matter. It's all it's all the same. You know, you have to do your time as a stunt performer. You have to be around the setup of car rolls and fire jobs and high falls and doing the grunt work bringing out the airbags and the mats and cleaning them and putting them out there for not necessarily you doing the stunt but being a part of the setup and safety team on the stunt seeing how it's executed and done and you know I was a performer for many many years I said I'm a performer in my eyes and I I've done all the stunts on my B movies in South Africa growing up fire jobs and pipe ramps and cannon rolls and high fours and all the stunts. So I've been, I've done them and I've been a part of setting them up. Even the small things like fights, going through a window, landing on a table that breaks away, all that sort of stuff. It's, it, what, it's what makes you as a stunt performer that you understand what the performer goes through, playing the character he's playing and doing the action. If you understand what the performer goes through, then when you become a coordinator, you can not only create a, a bigger spectacle, but you can make sure it's done safely and that the performer understands and that you understand the performer, what he's going through when he's setting up the stunt for that person. And a lot of the stunt coordinators these days are, well, not just these days, 
they might have friends in the business or play golf for the right person or this or that. And they get to a position of power without necessarily having the experience. And then what they do is they employ or try and employ the right people to have around them in order to get the job done. And in my opinion, that's not the way to do it. You should cut your teeth like you would with any big company. You'd start in the mailroom and work your way up to the executive floor. You have to cut your teeth doing the grunt work, being a good performer first. Once you become a good performer and you've had years of experience, then you could become a safe, creative stunt coordinator. And then, you know, the transition from coordinator to director doesn't happen to a lot of people. That is normally based on your, your creativity. And, and if you have that, the vision and, you know, the, the, the manner to do it. And, and that's, a, that's a different application altogether. Yeah. And you definitely have it, by the way, because seeing from the footage, um, especially the footage, not just The Mummy, but now with Fallout, which we're going to be talking about, I think it's the creative vision that you mentioned, what really differentiates and, and allows for some of these people to make the jump, much like yourself. So I wanted to focus uh, the second part of this conversation talking once again about the Mission Impossible franchise. Now, when people don't understand my deep passion for the series, because it's strange to many, I try to remind them that in a day which in which action movies are CG heavy and they're risk-saving products from studios, you guys actually go out of your way to shoot every single stunt in the movie practically. You know, you may remove a safety cable in post-production, but when you see Tom crashing into a car or slipping off the cliff on a mountain, that is Tom performing the stunt. And that's what people should keep in mind when they're watching the trailer for a movie like Fallout. Before we talk about Fallout, I wanted to take a step back and talk for a moment about Rogue Nation, which was your first role as a stunt coordinator on the franchise. And um, again, I, I've said this before, but what I love about your use of stunts as a storytelling device is the emotional process that turns a simple action sequence into a self-contained story, if you know what I mean. How a car chase becomes a series of people making decisions behind the wheel and the audience being locked into that, you know, creating work that is entertainment, but on your side feels very inspired. And when you're blocking a sequence that evolves, like the one you shot in Morocco, where a car chase becomes a motorcycle chase, what is your process like when designing action through character and story? And what are the limitations of precision driving in the streets of Casablanca, where you cannot control the crowd and you have crews speeding a motorcycle without a helmet because you got to show people it's actually him doing the driving. You know, the, the creative process starts very early on. I started a film long before normally, a, you know, a stunt corner, a second year director would because I get involved with the creative process. So, you know, Tom Cruise, Chris McQuarrie at that stage and myself will sit in a room, the three of us, and we will start, you know, mashing out ideas and, and what can be done and can't be done and getting the creative process started. And that's how sequences evolve. Um, as well as the story at the same time. And in mission, the action drives the story and then the story drives the action. And they work sort of counterintuitive. They keep working with each other as we build the, 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 you know, the story. And the big thing that you, you touched on, the importance is bringing the character into the action. And what I don't do is just create action sequences because anyone can do that. Anyone can make up a car chase or a boat chase or a bike chase. The audience, in my opinion, has to be connected to the character and they have to go on a journey with that character. And if they go on a journey with that character through the action, then that's what the movie's all about. So that's the hard part for me is to not just create big spectacles and big sequences, but is to take, make sure that it suits the character 
and, and suits the story and, and, and what we're going for. Um, you know, shooting in the streets of Casablanca with Tom driving, it was, I mean, we went through a lot of training and drift training and stuff in England and all these amazing racetracks here and, you know, through some of my contacts through racing, obviously, which was great. Um, and Tom, I mean, Tom was always a driver. He could always drive. He used to race back in the day. And But drifting is a different, uh, you know, a different discipline. And he, he just, he grasped it so quickly, but his his learning levels are so high and it was just so much fun. It was the most fun I've had, you know, doing that training, training him in that discipline and his precision in Casablanca and those streets, the proximity to the walls and stuff that you see on the film, that wasn't luck. That was consistently six, seven, eight, ten takes to the mark exactly the same every time. You know, I, I had 60 stunt people in buildings and locking off things that weren't even doing stunts. They were just ready to tackle someone if they had to, if they were going to walk onto an area or, or move into an area that might be a speeding car coming through, which is unusual. But even though the streets were locked up and it was all very safe, you could never, you had to allow for, for the unknown in an area like that because it was so, you know, populated. And, and it was, the key to that was consistency um, to keep it safe. And uh, I mean, Tom was, for, the driving, I've said it on a million interviews, you know, Tom's driving is on another level. I, I, I mean, I would not have, taken him out the car and put a stunt guy in the car at any time because no one would have done it better. It, it was, it was phenomenal. Um, and then the motorbikes, yeah, we had the motorbikes and high speed stuff. And it was always scary when Tom's riding a bike without a helmet. I don't, it was, could be anyone riding a bike, a stunt guy, a, you know, a world champion superbike rider or MotoGP rider. I would still be nervous because it only takes one shot to the head and you know, it's, it's game over. So we took all the precautions we could with modifications to the bike, with the streets, with surfaces, with padding on walls. We did everything we could. But at the end of the day, there's an element of risk always. And uh, that, that's the, the bikes was the only thing that made me really nervous on that film. Macquarie was very candid, I think, about talking and discussing the fact that you guys didn't really have a finished script when you were shooting uh, Rogue Nation, not at least all the way till the end. And what that allowed for over the winter break, from my understanding, is that you guys explore the story as the production was going along. So I was wondering if you could talk about working in those conditions and what was the biggest lesson from that onto the next one? Um, yeah, I mean, it was really tough, you know, finishing long days, 12, 13 hour days. And then whether we're in a plane flying somewhere or in a car driving somewhere or just in a room, it would just be after work, you know. Tom and Macquarie and myself just sitting down exhausted and, you know, I'd be driving the action and uh, Macquarie would be driving the story with Tom and the character and between the three of us we would try and come up with sequences and come up with story and come up with script until we were falling asleep. And then, you know, Macquarie would write it and we'd do it and it was an exhausting process. But I don't know if you want to say, I, I mean, I wouldn't, <laughs> it's one of those experiences. It definitely was an organic process and it, and it worked. But would I want to do that again? Not necessarily. It was an exhausting process. And on this one, uh, Macquarie's been, you know, had, had more time, I think, to get to get a story in place. And the way it's been structured and scheduled, you know, has certainly helped this movie be a, a lot a lot easier to work on. And again, the collaboration between Macquarie, uh, Tom and myself, we more and more used to each other. We've done a few together now. So it's it, it's a nice room. It's a nice creative process and a nice room to be in, you know? Yeah. All right, let's talk about Fallout then. First off, let me say that my expectations once I saw the trailer were not only met, 
but wildly topped. Um, it was fantastic. And you just talked about schedule. So I was going to ask you next, what is your process like in regards to preparing for multiple sequences at the same time over the course of production? You know, when you're rehearsing one and you're shooting another and you just started editing the one you just finished. I mean, is there a strategy in the order to which you schedule the stunts on a movie like Fallout for Tom's safety? Yes, there definitely is. Um, you know, we can't do big action on top of big action because he'd just be exhausted. I mean, again, he he does do everything. You know, I have a stunt double for Tom, uh, Chris, who's incredible. You know, he's Olympic level uh, gymnast. He's amazing on a motorbike and in a car. I mean, he's one of the best all-round stunt guys, in my opinion, in the world, if not the best. Um, and he's been with me a long, long time. I picked him up on X-Men 3 in Vancouver many years ago. Um, his first job for me was a 220-foot fall as doubling Angel out of a building in downtown Vancouver. Um, and ever since then, it's, it's just got bigger and bigger. So he's an, a phenomenal athlete and stuntman. And I have to rehearse all the sequences. Um, so I go through every sequence. I rehearse it with a stunt double. And we, we create something that I can then action viz and cut together and show um, Tom and Chris whoever, or whoever the director is on the movie and, and, and come up with something before I put Tom in that. And then once they agree in a sequence, then I, the process starts of training Tom to be able to do that sequence. And it doesn't matter if it's a gymnastic move, a drifting in a car move, a motorbike move. He applies himself 100% and it is all him on screen. The only time I use a stunt double is for the coming up with a product and the conceptual work to get it to a place that's safe and doable. And and then it's up to Tom. I mean, and he, he'll normally look at something and the more wild and amazing it is, he's like, you know, when do I start? And then the process starts of, of training him. And yeah, it is all Tom. It's Tom climbing, Tom driving, Tom Tom doing everything on, on Fallout. And I mean, the bike crashes you see, he puts his body through everything that a stunt guy would put his body through. But at the same time, he has to act. And again, this is the, the crucial part that I don't think a lot of people understand. You know, if we're just doing a stunt as a stunt man, we get on a motorbike, we put our pads on, we put our helmet on, we've done the rehearsals, we hit the car, whatever we do, we crash the bike and we roll across the ground and hopefully we're not hurt or broken something and we get up and we, we the shot's over. You know, and then we cut to the actor taking off the helmet and getting up and it's this and this and whatever it is. Or a visual effects takeover of a face replacement as the, you know, from the stunt man to the actor as he does the last little roll and stands up. But with what you'll see in Fallout is that motorbike is Tom the whole way. When it crashes, you stay with Tom the whole way. There is no cut. There is no point where there's a visual effects takeover or a stunt guy and Tom, an actor, doing the last two rolls into shot, which you see in a lot of shows. It's Tom the whole way. And I think that's what defines a Mission Impossible. And I also think that's what defines Tom Cruise. It keeps the audiences 100% engaged in the character. Yeah. I just got to ask you about the Paris car chase. You know, the streets give the sequence a European sensibility that I think audiences don't get to see often in American cinema. So how do you use a city like Paris as a location to elevate the stunts? And when you handle shooting a chase like this from, you know, the location scout to production, how much of it you get to shoot on a daily basis and what's your rhythm with your crew? You know, Paris does give that quality, you're right. You know, it gives a beautiful European city feel. And that's exactly what we all wanted out of it. Mission, in effect, we want that sort of spy movie feel. 
And Tom loves the classics. He loves all the old classic movies and all the old classic spy movies and the thrillers. And we wanted to bring some of that, the movie magic of the past, without all the visual effects spectacles and, you know, CG where everything, everyone's flying around in different colored outfits. And he, he, he wants to bring classic filmmaking. And that's what we're always going for. And when we scout locations and we, we scouted got a dozen more locations that we didn't shoot in. We flew all over the place. We want to walk into a city. We want to feel something. You want to feel French connection or you want to feel these movies that, that inspired you. And you want to see the cobbled streets and the textures of the buildings and the color form, you know, the color palettes. And you really want to feel that you, it feels right before you come up with what you're going to do there. Um, and that's what we got out of the locations we were in. I mean, we're in Paris, we're up the mountains in Norway, we were in New Zealand, which was magical. And, you know, we, we come up with story when we're, when we're there, we start to feel story. Um, obviously, shooting in Paris is a challenge, like shooting in London, New York, or any big city. It's always a massive challenge, you know, to lock off streets without upsetting the locals and make sure that businesses can trade as, as usual. Um, and the French were inc- incredible. I mean, to shoot in a busy city like Paris, we had the key to the city. I mean, they were so, they were so giving um, and so helpful. And it was an amazing experience. I mean, I had, I don't know, 70 stunt people there and it was just incredible. And um, the French crews and the French production were amazing. We mentioned the French connection as a, as a reference. And I don't know, I was just blown away by the fact that I was looking back at behind the scenes shots of how they did it back in the 70s, where they literally strapped the camera on the car and just leave Gene Hackman go. Uh, and I believe you did the same thing with Tom and Sean Harris, by the way, poor Sean Harris, who plays the villain in the movie, is strapped in the car with Tom and he has to fully trust that Tom is going to hit his marks. And all you did, uh, if I'm correct, is just, again, you strapped the cameras on and and how fast are they going, by the way? I mean, firstly, the car was legendary. I mean, to have the old M5, you know, and we took a long time to choose that car. And Tom's, Tom's a total petrol head like me. So cars and bikes have to be perfect on the films for a start, you know. And that M5 was just amazing. The look of it, the color of it. Uh, Peter Wedham, our production designer, with the coloring and everything, it was just classic from the start before the car even moved it was great yeah you know we had the option to put a stunt double in there for sean for some of the stuff but again we don't want to break away from the story because then you've got to frame out the actor on this shot and that shot rather than mount the camera strap them to the hood get a lovely two shot of the two guys driving with a real paris streets not cg streets strobing by on a green screen stage <clears throat> and doing the action you know we modify the cars to suit the action you know whether it's rally cross suspension or whatever you know i do with the cars and to make them to make them survive and not break in half and roll over um and then obviously you know it's up to tom to hit his marks which he does because he's an amazing driver but there was there were times that we'd see sean sean harris's face as he got you know jumped downstairs and slid around corners and bouncing off walls and but he he's a hell of a character sean and he loved every minute of it he's he's an absolute pleasure to work with he's brilliant i can't say enough nice things about him very intense actor very good actor and wants to be a part of everything you know whether you want to be a part of it or not at the beginning by the end of it you definitely want to be a part of it because tom inspires all the cast to be a part of the journey a hundred percent and you can't you know it's it's a drug you can't not want it because you see how much he gives by doing everything that you you sort of feel useless if you don't give a hundred percent because he gives so much by the end of it, you can see them change. 
they're in the gym, they're getting fit, they're doing more fight club with us, they're asking if they can do more fight training, you know, they, they, the whole level of training goes up, you know, and it all starts in the, in the very beginning of the movie, you know, training the actors to be fit so they don't get injured is um, something that starts way early on. So I, I have a Pilates-based training uh, girl that I use, Sam Eastwood, who um, comes in and basically gives me a, a little rundown, a little report on the body of the actor, actress, whoever it is um, doing the movie. Sometimes we have female actresses that have had a baby and I've got to, we've got to be a little bit careful of that. They've recently had a child or an actor has an old sports injury or something's happened. So Sam comes in and basically gives me a report on the actors. Can they do this or that? This is what we need to do character-wise. I'm going to fight with them. I'm going to do driving with them. And I'll get a full report. And then Tom has a team of trainers and um, I'll bring uh, Sam on to train the, the cast in strengthening their core. It's, it's overlooked a lot with the, the training today. Everyone goes in to get the, you know, the big bulging muscles, but everything comes from the core. So she comes in, trains the core, gets the actors or actresses you know, core strong and core fit that we're not going to damage them and pull a muscle or do something stupid. And then the, the, the stronger they get with her, the more we push them in their training. And that's how we build the training until they're at a place that Sean, when we first had him, he was, you know, he's not an athlete per se, um, but he was strong and um, through training with um, Sam and then fight training a lot with us, we built him up and made him really strong. And the, the stronger he got physically, the more he wanted to do physically and, and to keep up with Tom. And that's, that's what they all do. All the actors did it. I have to give special mention to, I'm not sure if you're going to ask me about him, but Henry Cavill, who plays Walker. We have a lot of different actors that come on these missions. And, uh, you know, Rebecca surprised us in Rogue Nation. She was phenomenal. But Henry Cavill, who plays Walker on this one, he really is on another level. I mean, he does everything himself too. And he wants to do everything. He will come and pitch up in our training room, even when he's not scheduled to train, just to come and work out or be better. And he will train five, six hours a day if he could with us. Um, and if it's something he's not even doing in the story, he's like, how did you guys do that move? I want to learn that move. And he'll come in and, and he'll do jujitsu with us. He'll do fight training with us. He'll do car stuff with us, bike stuff with us, even if he's not doing it in the movie. He's a phenomenal athlete. And I have to give special mention just because he's been such a pleasure to work with. He's, you know, he sits on set all day. He's not precious. He's down to earth. He's, he's just, uh, he's, a, he's an amazing character in the movie, but he's also a, a pleasure to work with. So I have to give special mention where it's due because, you know, not, not all actors have that commitment. Absolutely. And I think the footage speaks for itself. It looks like just everyone, not just the cast, but the crew as well, just had so much fun. We spoke, we spoke about Rob Hardy as the new cinematographer on the mission films. And McHugh elaborated on your guys' process by saying, quote, every camera position has been designed so that the audience can see Tom is doing everything himself. And I want to ask you as the second unit director, what are your conversations in regards to where to place the cameras to keep a chase sequence fresh? And could you talk about a stunt rig like the one you guys used for the scene where Tom is distracted and he turns and he smashes into the car and he goes flying and landing on the street? Yeah, so um, with Rob, you know, as I think I said before, he hasn't done action movies before, so he has to really trust those that have to guide him in where to place cameras. But his, his main job is to just make the movie look different and look beautiful. And that's where 
Chris and Tom McClever and when they choose a cinematographer, they want the movies to look different and feel different. So it's not a regurgitation of the same missions or the same things, you know, like a lot of the movies out there where it's like, what, which, which one am I watching? Is this the first, the second, the fifth? They, they all look the same. And that's with missions. We don't want that. We, we, we want a different lighting, a different mood, a different feel. The story should drive a feel. And if the audiences are looking at the same style movie, but the story's different, you're sort of half in, half out. So Chris and Tom spend a lot of time finding a good cinematographer that can, can give a different look, a different mood and a different feel. And I think that's what they've definitely obtained on this one. What about the rig? I saw behind the scenes footage and it just blew me away. The fact you guys had a practical rig of Tom's motorcycle heading for, you know, for a car that comes in, the motorcycle just flips up and sends Tom flying on a wire. Uh, could you talk about shooting that on the day in Paris? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a hard rig. I mean, the reason it was on a rig is so that we can have repeatability. So we don't trash 100 motorbikes and the timing on the car and the bike to hit in exactly the right spot and the camera to be in the right spot to keep this, again, to keep the audience on the, on the journey with us the whole way without cheats. So we designed a rig basically that did the same speed, it matched the speed that the motorbike was driving at before, but it gave us a consistency of biking car and camera. And that was the only reason we, we did it on a rig at all. Tom was like, wait, I want it as late as possible. I want to, you know, I want to, hit the car. I want to make contact, which, which is what we wanted. And we didn't want to cheat it. And, um, it was a hard impact and it was a stunt that went very well. And Tom did it a number of times and, um, kudos to him. It's him the whole way. Yeah. I'm going to start wrapping things up and ask you if you could travel back to the first day of filming on fallout last April and give yourself one piece of advice in regards to the experience, what would it be? And, and which sequence proved itself to be the hardest to shoot? Well, I started this movie a year and a half ago. So if I'd known what I, <laughs> what I knew now, back then I would have made different Christmas plans because I was meant to finish about five months ago. So <laughs> that would might have been my advice I would have given myself. But no, nothing really because mission movies, they evolve as we shoot, as the character evolves, as the action evolves, as the story evolves. And that's the way we do them. And I've got to give kudos, which I, you know, I, I don't mention a lot, but Paramount, is, is an, such an amazing studio to work with because they come visit, they see the chaos. And a lot of the time it is that because it's, we haven't finished a sequence. We're still pushing for bigger and better. And it's like, well, this sequence is meant to be finished tomorrow. It's like, yeah, but we could make it this much better if we just did this. And they, they, they see it, they visualize it and they give it to us. And it's not filming by numbers. It's what makes the movie different and gives the, it gives the audiences that spectacle like the trailer. I'm going to close our conversation by sharing a beautiful quote of yours soon after you started working in the business where you said, quote, I realized that it's not the films that you do. It's the work that you do in the films. You created some death-defying moments and continue to push the limits of action cinema to the extreme. Do you have a favorite stunt performed not just in the mission movies, but overall among the history of action cinema you have enjoyed over the years? Um, I mean, I, I really have enjoyed... I did enjoy the car stuff on Rogue and the A400 stuff. I've enjoyed lots on this. I can't say yet because the movie hasn't come out. Um, I've got to say for me personally, the stuff I've really enjoyed is the stuff I've done as a performer because I'm a performer at heart. Um, driving the jet boat down the River Thames was probably my favorite of all time just because it was just amazing to be James Bond driving down the River Thames in London uh, for seven weeks. It was That was probably 
if I had to single it out, that was probably my defining moment, the best moment of, of my career that, that made me the happiest. And apart from that, anything driving really. Mission Impossible Fallout opens on July 27th. And wait, once again, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for all the insight once again. No worries, guys. Thank you very much. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Wade for being so generous with his time and going even more in-depth in regards to the creative process behind shooting action. Thanks again, and stay tuned for upcoming episodes with new guests. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access. <laughs>